Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our new series called Under Pressure today with a message titled Reveling in Our Inheritance. So turning your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. When Jesus began his great sermon, what we now call a Sermon on the Mount, well, he used the word blessed nine times in just a few lines. And to describe someone as blessed is describe their well-being. I mean, the person who is blessed has the best possible well-being that we might imagine. And I know we don't use the word blessed very often in everyday language anymore, but if we did, let me tell you how we'd use it. Someone has just won a $20 million lottery, we'd say they're blessed. Someone has beaten cancer, we'd say they're blessed. Someone just got into med school, just passed their exams, they were accepted, we'd say they're blessed. So the word blessed means that someone is doing remarkably well, a lot better than the rest of us. Wouldn't we want to be like that? Now, I mention that because after the introduction of 1 Peter, we come to the body of the letter, chapter 1, verse 3. The very first word we read will be the word blessed. I think that's remarkable because in my introduction to this book, I portrayed the recipients of this letter as a group of Christians living in a number of Roman provinces where it was getting tougher and tougher to be a Christian. I mean, for one, the emperor of Rome was now the madman Nero, who would make sport of murdering Christians. Now, that was happening in Rome, and it's unlikely that that was also being done where these believers were living, but it was clear to them that Rome had become a menacing foe. And furthermore, the attitude of their pagan neighbors had gone from being suspicious to being menacing and hostile. And so these newly formed Christian churches were beginning to face a very uncertain future. Dark clouds were forming on the horizon. Some of their own had already been persecuted, and it seemed like a stiff wind of persecution might likely become a hurricane. And against this background, I wouldn't expect the first word in the body of this letter to be the word, blessed. I might have expected a sentence such as, brace yourself for the day of battle. Your enemy, the devil, seeks to devour you. You're now in full-fledged warfare. I mean, something like that. But to begin with the word blessed, well, now, that's pretty much the last word I would expect. And yet, there it is. But just when then you'd think that the word blessed might refer to these suffering believers, well, again, we're going to be surprised. Verse 3 begins by saying, Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ha <laughs> you might say. Well, of course, God's blessed. I mean, after all, he is doing remarkably well. Yes, yes, God is doing well. But let's just stop for a moment and think. When the Bible uses the word blessed in relation to God, well, it uses it as a synonym for praise. So the command to bless God, well, that's a command to praise God because of who God is. He deserves our cries of blessing. Well, very good. This letter, using the term blessed for favored or highly exalted, well, invites the readers to begin by worshiping God for his most favored status. And here, stop and think. Think of how the letter begins. You know, many Western Christians, when they're facing difficulties or suffering, or something that's causing deep pain is happening to them, they begin their prayers with the words, why? Or God, how could you let it happen to us? So we begin with words that request of God, that he immediately deliver us from the hour of trial. Oh God, rescue me from this evil hour. 
I'm going to address that matter, but if you began to read, as I will shortly now do, you know, we read 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5, you'll hear the theme of blessing to God and then the words of thanksgiving as to how God has blessed or treated us. And yeah, all of us who get tempted to blame God or claim that we're angry with God or are confused that God would let us go through the hour of trouble, all of us need to hear this first paragraph of the book of 1 Peter. So let's begin to read 1 Peter 1, 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so before we examine the details, let's grasp the overall sense of what we've just read. See, this is a call for believers to bless God, that is, worship God, because God has so blessed us, that is, God has given his children something that makes us realize that we're remarkably well off. Let me say it again. We bless God, worship him, because he has blessed us. We are remarkably well off. And I could almost hear the response. Are you sure these people, that is, the ones who got this letter, were remarkably well off? I thought they were being persecuted. Oh, good. I hope you're hearing the almost contradictory notes that begin this amazing letter. So let's begin by looking at the details. We notice that Peter begins with a Trinitarian note. He will mention God the Father, Jesus the Lord, his Son right here. Then later in verse 12, he's going to mention the Holy Spirit. Peter wants his hearers to bless the triune God. Now, don't you think that's an important thing to say to people who are weighed down with discouragement because of suffering? I mean, what should you do when you're suffering? Well, you should worship. Now, by calling the Father, who is the first person of the Trinity, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that brings to mind that in the Gospel of John, such as John 5, 19, that the Father commands and the Son obeys. That doesn't mean that the Father is greater than the Son. John begins by saying that the Word was God. The Son is God. The Son is fully equal to the Father. But the Father takes the lead and the Son obeys. And as we thank God for this marvelous arrangement in the Trinity, we think about what the result has been for us. Halfway through verse 3, we read, according to his great mercy, notice it, It's according to God the Father's mercy towards us that he caused us, his people, to be born again. Here now, in shorthand, Peter gives the entire plan of salvation. The Father sent the Son. The Son obeyed the Father, even to death on a cross. He paid for our sins on the cross, and in consequence, we were born again. That is, we received a new heart in which now, in all things, we love God and we belong to God. And this new birth, says Peter, has resulted in something. And this is what he's really getting at. We're born again into a living hope. Now, a living hope is the opposite of a dead hope. See, a dead hope is one that's empty. It's one that's temporal. I mean, think of what people hope for. They hope for happiness, romantic love, money, status, health, good reputation, fame. But all these things are dead hopes because with time, these hopes will fail and perish. But a living hope doesn't die. And where does that come from? Well, Peter tells us it comes from the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And so in an instant, we see what hope Peter has in mind. 
we hope in the resurrection of our own bodies as well. Our hope is, as he says in verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable. That is, what we are getting is something that can never end, never fail. And the fact that Peter deliberately uses the word inheritance, that's telling. You know, in the First Testament, the inheritance is the promised land that had been promised to Israel. But Peter uses that same word and he applies it to our heavenly country, the home that is our eternal inheritance. Now, Peter is not the only New Testament writer to speak that way. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 11, 13 to 16, when he speaks of us being exiles on the earth, he speaks of us as awaiting a heavenly homeland. And writing after Peter, John in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 speaks of the new heavens and the new earth. And so Peter is trying to build in the minds of believers a sense of dissonance between the vain hope of those who live for this present hour and the sure hope, the living hope, that is the part and parcel of what all believers have. Notice also the words that Peter uses to describe the hope of the believer. It's not, says Peter, only imperishable, but it's also undefiled. Another way of saying that would be to say that it will never be stained. I mean, perhaps Peter's thinking about stained by sin. But if that's what he means, he also means that our inheritance will never lose its luster. I mean, think of that new car that you hope for, that one day that car is going to be a beat up, out of date and out of style piece of junk. Ah, but your inheritance, that remains undefiled. That means we're going to find it as attractive and alluring and filled with wonder as much in millions of years from now as we do on the very first day that we inherit heaven. Peter's still not done. The inheritance, he adds, is unfading. I mean, perhaps Peter has in mind the same victor's crown that was granted the runners that Paul spoke of. It was a, a garland wreath, and eventually it died. But not this inheritance, says Peter. And I'm sometimes dismayed when Christians talk as if heaven is not the chief goal of the believer. Well, now, if not that, then what's your goal? And they say, well, a rich, meaningful, and giving and caring life right here and now. And my response is, well, how long does that last? If you have a stroke tomorrow, that rich life you speak of, it's reduced to life in a care home being fed by others. Everything fades. But the inheritance in eternity, that does not. Back to the Bible Canada. It's our hope that your walk with Christ would be strengthened and encouraged through the wide variety of resources made available through so many different mediums to ensure Bible teaching you can trust is freely accessible to those who desire to know the Bible and our Lord more deeply. One listener wrote, It is a joy to listen to Dr. Newfeld and the staff of Back to the Bible Canada as they faithfully teach the Bible daily. It's a real blessing to hear the word daily for encouragement and exhortation. If you feel blessed by this ministry, can we ask you to help us reach our fiscal year-end goal of $409,000? This year, a few friends of the ministry have offered to match your gift dollar for dollar up to $100,000 to make this campaign a success. To make your gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
First Peter is a book written to suffering believers who are being told to bless God because God has given them an undying inheritance through the resurrection of Jesus. But how can we be assured that we will have a part in the celestial city? When we come to verse 5, please notice the word salvation. And so when we talk of salvation in the New Testament, we can speak of it in the past, in the present, and in the future. When we speak of in the past, it either refers to what God has done for us in eternity past, that is, in planning our salvation, or we can also speak about it in our personal past, that is, on the day when we were converted to Christ, when we were born again. Now, when we speak of our salvation in the present tense, we speak of it in terms of our sanctification. We're learning constantly to forsake evil, rely on the Holy Spirit, and live the holy life. But here in verse 5, salvation is spoken of in the future. And notice Peter speaks of salvation to be revealed in the last time. It's salvation because in the last day, we're going to be delivered from judgment and damnation and be given a kingdom in which we will rule and reign with Christ for eternity. Now then, notice at the beginning of verse 5, we're told that we're being guarded by faith, by God's power for this salvation. It means that God is protecting us in such a way that he's guaranteeing this future salvation. And the point in 1 Peter can't be missed. At many times, believers were being threatened by civic authorities. They said, give up your faith, then the persecution will end. And as the days of suffering grew longer, As the days seem to go on and on, one wonders if believers could hold out. But, says Peter, your salvation isn't that vulnerable. If it were up to you, you being able to hold fast in the day of trouble, perhaps we could see the possibility that your persecutors could win the day. Because of your suffering, you might give up. But in fact, you're being shielded by God's power. That's the content of verses 3 to 5. Instead of hanging your head and wondering how God might have allowed such a fiery trial to come upon you. Instead, you need to worship and revel in the inheritance that's yours. Quite frankly, says Peter, you're the most advantaged people on earth. Now, if we who read this letter think about that, we might rethink how we approach our hardships and the sufferings we undergo. Think about what you have. If you're born again, do you meditate on the fact that it's a new birth into a living hope, a hope that God is protecting? Who, outside of you and believers like you, have such a privileged station in life? Now, having set the stage for what he's discussing, Peter's now ready to address the suffering people of God. And here I'm reading 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In this you rejoice. That is, believers rejoice when they think about the guarantee that they have through the resurrection of Jesus. And then come several clauses that we need to consider. Though now for a little while, small phrase, little while, sometimes that gets our attention. I say it gets our attention because as you and I know, sometimes suffering isn't a little while. It might go on for a lifetime. And Peter, of all people, understood that. His life as an apostle, along with that of Paul and others, was one of constant suffering. Second Corinthians, Paul says his sufferings had at that time become so extreme that he despaired of life itself, that his suffering was so unremitting. It seemed like he didn't have strength to go on. 
And there are those who are listening to me right now who identify fully with what I've just said. You may be suffering for some very painful ongoing illness that just never ends. A little while seems like an insult. Isn't that the thing that gets said by people who aren't suffering? Oh, yeah, maybe. But remember the man who wrote this did suffer. No, a little while is supposed to be understood against the eternity that lies before us. It's not a little while when we only think of our lifetime, but it's a little while when we think of it compared to eternity. Well, the next troublesome phrase is the phrase, if necessary. I mean, some of us would feel a little better about this paragraph if the phrase said, if for a little while, if it so happens that you might suffer. I mean, something like that. But Peter doesn't say, if it should so happen that unfortunately suffering comes your way. Rather, he says, if it is necessary that suffering comes your way. Peter's operating under an assumption. His assumption is that when suffering comes upon the life of a believer, it's God the Father that has deemed it necessary that his individual believer should suffer in this way. It's never an accident or chance or fate. It's the will of God who deems this suffering is now necessary for you personally, individually, as well as for a group of believers. Then comes the next phrase. If necessary, says Peter, you have been grieved by various trials. You see, not all trials are the same. Persecution, well, that's one kind of a trial, but illness is a trial. Financial disaster is a trial. So is crime that might be committed against you. So also is it when you're excluded from something because you're a believer. And Peter is aware that the trials that come to believers are not only brought on by a God who deems these trials as necessary, but also each trial in all its unique features, is brought on by God who designs them specifically. And does that bother you, my brother or sister? Perhaps you're of the sort that has been told that God would never allow bad things to happen to good people. And then right here in 1 Peter, at the beginning of the book, you're now being told straight up, you're wrong. Those trials were brought to you by God who deemed them necessary. Now then, necessary for what? And here Peter answers, verse 7. So that, or in order that, or God does it for a very specific reason. Ready for that? Uh, Here now is the answer. So that the tested genuineness of your faith. Oh, stop there. God introduced this suffering so that, well, he already knows if your faith is genuine. But you need to know if your faith is genuine. You know, it was years ago when Elie Wiesel, a Jewish writer and a survivor of the Nazi concentration camp, a winner of a Nobel Prize, wrote about faith among those in the concentration camps. Wiesel and his two older sisters survived. The rest of his family all perished. He was liberated from Auschwitz by the Americans. And Wiesel noted that some, when they suffered, had a faith like a candle. When a harsh wind blew, the candle went out immediately. Others had faith like glowing embers. When the wind blew, the embers were whipped up into a roaring fire. And that's what Peter's saying here. God designs your trials so that you, not him, but you would understand what kind of faith you have. See, I've met many people who have abandoned their faith for a wide variety of reasons. And in each case, the trials they underwent showed them what kind of faith they had. But notice that Peter has much better hopes for his hearers. And here he speaks about a faith that's more precious than gold. And in this illustration, Peter seems to be stressing at least two things. First, gold perishes. It's not eternal. True faith is. Second, gold is refined by fire, and so is genuine faith. Something happens to believers when they suffer. And we're going to read more about that in chapter 4, verse 1. There, Peter will say that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, we're going to explain that later. 
But after comparing suffering and tested genuineness of faith to gold, Peter goes on to say that when faith is discerned to have been genuine, it results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. I find that fascinating. See, you notice that in verse 3, we began this discussion by calling for suffering believers to bless God the Father for their highly favored status in life. And now at the end of this short first section, Peter ends by saying that when Christ returns, praise, glory, and honor are given to the person whose faith was tested and was proved to be genuine. That is, the trials not only test our faith, but they're also the reason believers are rewarded on the last day. Have you gone through struggles? And you've not lessened in your faith, but held more firmly to Christ. Rejoice! God has noticed and will reward you. So this then is Peter's beginning to this letter. It's a struggling, persecuted, and suffering group of believers. In a sense, as I think about what Peter has written, I'm reminded that our sufferings are all a matter of perspective, wouldn't you say? Your perspective might be, woe is me, I'm suffering. Why would a loving God allow me to go through this? Or your perspective might be, a loving God has designed the day of this trial uniquely for me. He wanted to show me that I'm genuine. He's looking to increase my faith. He's looking to increase my reward in the ages to come. So I end by asking this question. Do you think you're blessed? And if you are, bless God. He has designed these days specifically for you to maximize your joy and to give you the best possible delight in the world to come. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, Would it be true to say many of those in countries where Christians are more severely persecuted seem to cope much better than those of us in North America? Yeah, I think uh, North America, Europe, I think uh, those, uh, some ways I think we have bought into a false gospel, uh, which somehow believes that uh, our experience in this world, because if God is blessing us, will be an experience that's free from suffering. Um, That's a false gospel. That's not how the New Testament reads. Um, Those people who argue that, that, let's say the faith teachers, they're doing that by taking verses desperately out of context, and uh, they're making a case for something that doesn't exist. But the other reason why we struggle so much with suffering is because uh, many of us, uh, the idea that, you know, we we would go without is novel to us. And so uh, when it happens, we're shocked. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Under Pressure, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada recently wrapped up the Israel Experience 2022. And as usual, it proved to be a trip of a lifetime for those who attended. Witnessing firsthand the sites and locations where Jesus walked and taught is a surreal experience that can't help but make a profound impression on your walk in the Word. One guest wrote, My trip to Israel has tremendously impacted my faith journey by experiencing the Holy Land firsthand accompanied by competent archaeological, theological, and historical teaching, all made possible by expert planning. We're so honored and privileged to be able to host this experience for our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And we're also so excited to announce the Israel Experience 2023 is now in its final stages of planning. And information can be found visiting backtothebible.ca or calling 1-800-663-2425.